Welcome to Authority Issues, a podcast about leadership, management, and seeing blue checks on fire off the shoulder of Orion. Watching CEO bungled layoffs glittering in the dark near the Tannhauser Gate. All those Twitter moments will be lost in time like tears in rain. Time to... Wait. Wait, where was I? All right. I'm Rachel Perkins, aka Pie or Pie Bob. I'm into words, operations, cheese, and whiskey, and of course, leadership. And I'm Kendall Miller. If I bike and kayak hard enough, all of my pain will go away. Right? Right? Right. Totally right. Uh, today on the show, we're talking with Virgil Rangard, CEO at Figures. Hi, Virgil. Welcome, Virgil. Hello, boss. We, we said your name perfectly, first of all. Was that right? Absolutely, perfectly. So I, I usually give a grade out of 10 to most people when we play this game. I give you both 8, 8.5, which is pretty good. I think it's above I'll average. Take it. I'll take it. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I should be better because I grew up speaking French, but I grew up speaking French in Switzerland. So, you know. So the wrong French. You never know what's going to happen there. So, uh, (laughs) well, let's dive right in, Virgil. Let's start with, tell us about your path to leadership, to management. How did you end up as a CEO running your own company? What got you there? Where did you start? Go all the way back as far as you want. Maybe you were a CEO once when you were a kid running your own Lemonade stand. Start, lemonade start stand. Classic. Yeah. That's, that, yeah. There's such an American cliche. Like, you know, there's no lemonade stand in France. So that I have to find the equivalent yet, of selling yet, like Virginia, croissant or pain au chocolat. My big st- thing. <laughs> okay. Maybe we should stop. Stand. Maybe I should start doing that. <laughs> no. In fact, you know, it's the other way around. I never thought I'd be in that, in that seat before because, in fact, I, I'm going to go on about that. But I, I, I've been spending most of my time as an HR and uh, in support functions right, in support world, right? And I thought most of my life and professional career, I'd be supporting a, a leaders. And I never thought I'd become a company leader myself. But let me go back a little bit before that, right? Before yeah. HR, because weird background in the sense that I actually started studying computer science. And I studied computer science oh. for three years after high school. And then I realized that while I loved coding, and I still do to this day, in some sense, um, I didn't like the life of a developer or what I perceived to be the life of a developer back then. So I completely shifted towards human resources, which is a very, very weird uh, move during my studies. And I ended up having yeah. a master's degree in human resources. Wow. So, so, so wait, I already have a question. How did you, what did you perceive the life of a developer to be like? I, I perceive it to it. be very solitary, right? And, uh, and uh-huh. I, I'm, I'm, I'm the kind of person, the kind of guy that likes to talk maybe way too much and mm-hmm. I felt like you're in the right place. I completely identify yeah. with all of this 100% <laughs> love to code like to talk more keep going <laughs> and so I I was like I don't know what I should do and someone told me like I was doing summer camps at the time right as a camp counselor and someone should say, oh, you're such, mm-hmm. I mean, you seem tailor-made for HR. And, you know, I didn't want, I didn't know back then what I wanted to do with life. I said, I don't know what HR is, but HR it is. And I went and did the HR. <laughs> thing, like, had faith in this lady. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was like, I was lost. I didn't know what to do with my life. She said I should do HR. Well, then I'll do HR. And then oh. I ended up having awesome. this HR degree. And my first role out of, um, out of uni back then was in compensation, which was like a mix of the science background I had with HR, right? And I didn't know back then, but would lead wait, me wait, to... Wait, 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 wait. There's to, no science in yeah. compensation. You ask a person what they're willing to pay, you offer them less than <laughs> that, and then you, ju- you just give them the least amount of money that will keep them at the company, right? You probably have a different you are a CEO expert. behavior. <laughs> yeah, you're a complex expert already. And uh, yeah, you're already a mm-hmm. complex expert. So there's... I was thinking there was science prior to discovering that, but I uh, actually joined in, started in compensation, 
And then I did HR system, so HR tech for a while, running, implementing some of the first HR tech SaaS solution. Oh my God. Back then, we were talking uh, 2010, 2011, or, or the like. And then I was like, I need to do something more closer to the generalist HR role. Those are very technical roles. And I need, if I really want to be an HR, I need to start doing like general HR management. Went to Australia, uh, spent two years and a half over there doing generalist Wh HR roles. Why? Why did you go to Australia? What I visited, happened? Yeah, I visited Australia during my, uh, back then to implement an uh, HR solution, right? HR payroll solution. Uh, started chatting mm -hmm. with the HR person. It was like, hey, what about a role? Down here, I was like, well, I'd love to move place. Like, I've never had the chance to live abroad back then. I missed out on the chance, mm -hmm. like most European people, to go do like one year abroad, one semester abroad. I was like, let's do it. Let's go for Australia. So I went to Perth, like the west coast of Australia. Wow. Yeah. All the way over yeah, there. That's, yeah. That's, that's literally the opposite of the world from France. I think, and you know, <laughs> Perth is, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And Perth is the most is isolated large city in the world or something like that, above one million uh, Like the closest large cities, like a large place is like Bali, three hours and a half away. But anyway, two years and a half there, got back from Australia, love my time over there, a bit too far from uh, France, uh, love my time, mm. love, got back, and I was like, I got to do, keep doing HR, but I want to do it something in an industry closer to my heart, which was tech, right? I wanted to do HR in tech. And at the time sure. I started, I joined Criteo, which was one of the first uh, French Unicorn listed on the Nasdaq, right? Criteo, ad tech company. It was French 2000. Unicorns. Yeah. First, um, I know 2000 every French person that I know worked at Criteo. Every French person that I know at some point <laughs> worked at Criteo. I think that's a selection uh, effect situation yeah, that's right. there. Well, that's true. Anyways, keep going. Sorry. No, but I think back then it was like the. the honestly, it was probably the best French uh, company, French tech company back then, right? And I think they were. Mm -hmm. uh, Criteo was like targeting the best engineers out there and building a large tech function. So I ended up being HR for the tech function over France and the US, right? So we're all overlooking our Palo Alto office and then uh, an office in Ann Arbor, Michigan, right? Which I had the chance to visit quite a few mm -hmm. times, including Palo Alto, which was interesting because this is when I discovered when we zoom in on like HR and compensation, the huge differences, the huge gap between like California, even like Michigan and France, right? In terms of culture, in terms of compensation, mm -hmm. understanding, in terms of understanding equity and the like. It was a beautiful time back then. Um, spent three years there, but then I wanted to be, I wanted to be part of, I wanted to be part of like a much, much more early stage company. And I ended up being there, being a VP of people operation in a post-series A startup in France called Comet at the time, mm -hmm. because I wanted to create, go for it. Well, so yeah, so, 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 uh, yeah, I mean, you might, you might be about to answer some of this, but so at the, at Critio, your HR, were you just doing compensation or were you doing everything HR at Critio? Everything HR. Everything, everything HR. HR. Like, so you're the thing, yep. bad guy. People tell me never be friends with HR. <laughs> That was you. Don't trust and HR. Then, oh, let's get into it. <laughs> and then you went and became like VP of human resources at a small company. Like, just tell us how different those two are because Critio has different legal needs from an HR side than small tech companies. So I'm, just, I'm curious how widely different that was. But so, you know, to your point, like HR being the bad guy, the chance I had at Critio is like, you know, the CTO at the time was like, I don't like the way HR is being run in this company, I'm going to hire on my own budget HR people to run HR the way I wanted to, to run. And in fact, I had a much, much different relationship. At least, this is interesting, at least in France with people, despite being an HR person, I think we, we managed to have this level of trust and like partnering with the, with the teams over there 
that honestly I felt like we had we had good partnering. We're not a bad cop. We're not a bad guy. We're not the kind of HR that you see only once when you I come in. I want to believe you. I want to believe you. Uh, <laughs> keep going. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You had to interview someone from uh, from from Crete to get that. But honestly, and when I got to the US, like the man, like the diff, there was a huge difference in perception in our US offices, especially in California, mm-hmm. with my role and the sure. role of HR role. Much more yeah. defiant, much less willing to partner. Partly huh. because I, I think we had they had this perception of uh, HR, which is partly justified. I'm not saying it's not justified of like HR being the bad guy, mm-hmm. someone yeah. should we always wary of. But it's interesting, and I'll, I'll jump onto the why what was different the startup. But I always think mm-hmm. the good thing about Criteo and good healthy companies they empower HR to be the middleman and not as much as possible, right? Instead of being like the best defender of the company's interest at all time. They're employing HR to be like, try at times to defend the employee's interest, to push for employee's interest, even when it goes against the company's best interest, right? Up to a point because you're being paid. You're still payroll by a company. Yeah, right? the company pays you. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But good yeah, company yeah. leaders uh, do this like, I know I need this kind of counter power. I'm going to empower you to do so. At the end of the day, you're still being paid by the company. But at least they say, push me, push like, fight some of my decisions when you think they need to be fought for the employee's best mm-hmm. interest, defend the employee's best interest. I need this kind of counter power to keep this company being a healthy place for people to work, right? Up to a certain extent, but so I think I have feel, this view of HR. Like as, as a, a person in HR and not necessarily always the leader of HR, but as someone who is interacting with employees and interacting with your employer, being the middleman, a middle person, what I mean, you're constantly existing in a state of tension, right? It's yes. got to be super stressful. Like, do, when did you realize that that was part of the job, and how do you how do you mitigate that? How do you prevent it from you know tearing you apart? If you like people, it's got to be a really hard job to have. It's it's an amazing question, right? Because it's interesting. Most there's quite a good bunch of people I've been studying with that did HR because they wanted to defend people's best interests and face with that mm-hmm. predicament of being always torn and at times and most of the time in the majority of companies in fact defending the company's best interest against the, the best interest for the people ended up moving away and a good mm-hmm. bunch of them ended up being working like in a non-profit organization and stuff like that so they're like you know mm-hmm. I don't want to feel that burden of having to be torn in the middle or having to defend company decisions I don't believe in I don't trust and I don't think I yeah. in the people's best interest. In my case, I said it was tough. I mean, when it was Australia toward my end of, of my spell there, we had to lay off a part of the population, a very topical topic. And I was like being in charge of being like change manager of some sort. So running decision on who oh, should wow. let go and so on. And I had to let go of people myself within my team and so on. And, and, and I guess this is tough, especially when you've tried to build the positioning where you try to be close to the population and so on. And it's interesting. Back then, my boss had a completely different view. He was like, you know, I don't want to get too close to people. Every company party, I, I stay half an hour. I take one drink and then I leave. This was his golden rule <laughs> because he didn't want mm-hmm. to be faced with that precament. So, you know, at the end of the day, I think I represent the company. I tried to, to build something different, but at times I think it was very, very complex and tough. Uh, honestly, yeah, t- quite tricky to live with in those kind of tough times. Yeah. That's so how do you how did you did you go to therapy? Do you have a meditation practice? Like how do you how do you make it okay? Like you seem like a pretty happy dude. I, uh, because you <laughs> Is know, that I, just I, a show? 
no, no, I'm a pretty, I'm a very damn happy. I'm, ha I'm having the best time of my life. And we're going to get to as to why into some sense. But yeah, yeah, what you're doing I, now. Yeah, but then I didn't have mental health support. And I think that was a mistake. And at times I think I would have been a much healthier and happier person if I had, I was going to therapy back then. I had the kind of mentoring and advising and coaching I'm having now and the mental support I'm having uh, with my therapist I think I'm much better place now than I was then and I think it would have mm -hmm. been a good place then and I know a lot of HR especially I'd say you know mm -hmm. those that are alone in smaller scales that feel very alone in smaller scale company right because the good thing when you're larger right. group, there's people you can talk to there's people in the same situation mm -hmm. and you within the company that are that you can chat with I think there's a quite uh, a sentiment a feeling of loneliness when you're the only HR in a smaller scale company where you're holding those responsibilities mm -hmm. and no one to talk to right uh, and often at tiny companies the person who is doing the HR work is also like the office manager and uh, doing operations in some sense like it's a multi-part job right and they're not job. necessarily prepared for that stretch from there's 15 people and we just have to have someone to do the paychecks and make sure no one is, everyone's got their paperwork to like a hundred people. And you actually need to support your employees and have programs for them. That's gotta be the worst time for, for someone who's not like 100% into the job of HR from the beginning. So, yeah. so we got to let you get back to your story. Cause I have like nine questions, oh, yeah. Sorry. but I, I want to know, <laughs> Like, I'm trying to hold them okay. in where Rachel's just going for so you, it, which is fine, Rachel. I'm going for it. Really Sorry. Fine. It's been so long. It's been so long. But so we, so you got I'll to the point where you came back from Australia. Yeah. You came from, and then you went to work for a small company. Yeah, no, I went for right? Criteo after Australia, three years at Criteo, largest oh, right. French company. Okay. And then I was like, I'd want to, even then, I always got into smaller and smaller companies. I was like, I'd love to have more room to innovate. I'd love to have more room to try stuff, even on the people side. And I kept being attracted by some of the things I was seeing on the startup seat. Back then, one thing that kept attracting me was this concept of transparent salaries. Some of the first companies in France were pushing the boundaries of making all salaries transparent, of course, which was a bit more prevalent mm -hmm. in the US at the time, but not at all in France. And I kept being, being faced with those things and being, I, I, I'd like to go and try my own things in the company. That was the first thing. The second thing was, I'd like to be more exposed and closer to the business and be exposed to non-HR topics. So being coming as a VP of people operation in a small scale company, well, we're talking 50 people, right? So executive in a 50 uh, employees company is not much. But still, I was exposed to strategic decisions of the company. Mm -hmm. Should we expand into a new country? You or were not? in the executive circle. Yeah, exactly. And then yeah. I was very free to take on decision on what should we do in terms of hiring processes, culture, compensation models, and so on with like complete starting from scratch, which was honestly, honestly, honestly amazing. But back then, yeah. linked to our yeah, first yeah. point, I still thought I'm, I'm going to be HR. I never thought still to this point that I'd be creating my own company. I was supporting an amazing leader, someone I, I was a big fan of. I was, and I was like, that's going to be my life, supporting this kind of person. But being in that environment, especially in a company that I think they had, a, and by the founders there, I had a great culture of fostering innovation. So they hired a lot of ex-entrepreneurs and they hired a lot of people saying, we're going to spend two years with us. You're going to be in a good place to create your own company afterwards. And we're going to make sure you create your own company afterwards, wow. which I think was a unique culture. So we're in this very mm -hmm. entrepreneurial type of culture. And I think yeah. this is talking to those kind of people got me to a place where like, I think I can do this, but I didn't have an idea until late into my spell there. 
And so, okay. And, so you said, oh, sorry, Kendall has a million questions. I'm well, sorry. I Go do, ahead, but Kendall. I, but I got, I got to get all the way to figures. So, so you then you left that company and you went and started figures, or did you work other places before that yes. happened? No, no. This is where when I was there. So, two things: immediate pain when I was there. When I was working on my new compensation model, way right, and I wanted to try new things, I kept being like, I have no market data on what other startups and scale-up are doing when it comes to compensation. And so I ended up being dragged into endless conversation with, I'm offering you 60K as a data analyst in my company. Wait, and the company would be saying, wait, 60K is way too low. The market is around 70, 75. I was like, no, the market is not at 70. I asked my HR peers in other companies. They told me it was 60. I asked some of my friends who are data analysts in other companies. They told me it was 75. So we are stuck in this endless negotiation, endless discussions and there's two things right one is inefficient super inefficient because endless conversation then i had to drag to go and try to gather more information from my peers online whatever unfair because basically what you're doing when you're doing that right is leaving too much room for negotiation negotiation creates unfairness and yeah especially People who are good at negotiation do better exactly yeah. and especially between men and women because the topic of my end of studies hr uh, studies uh, thesis was around the gender pay gap. So I was very familiar with the fact that negotiation leads to unfairness, especially between men and women. So I had this thing like, it's inefficient, it's unfair, I need to do something about it. That was the key starting point for creating figures was back then, when I was BP of people in this startup named Comet, I was like, I, 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 I need to do something about this. That was the key driver. Yeah. So then you go start right. figures and how, how big is this company now, first of all? How many people? So I created, I created figures two years ago, and now we are like 30 employees. We're about to be 36, 30. 35, 36 by the end of the year. Yep. Okay. And I have questions about mm -hmm. HR in France versus the US because you've crossed both of those and, and there's like stereotypes yep. about them. And I'm curious to ask that. But the first question I want to ask is, how did your view of HR change when you're when you work at Critio, you are a cog in the Critio machine and you see the other employees as cogs in the Critio machine and they're kind of your people and your peers. Even if you're looking out for Critio, you identify with the working man. And when you get to figures, this is your company and you want HR to fucking watch out for figures and they better get out of the way because this is your company <laughs> and they're not going to do, I mean, has your opinion changed on HR in general? Yeah. Uh, did you change from for the people to for to, the company? For the company. Your company. I think that's so what he's for you, I mean, has your opinion changed or not? Really? <laughs> so uh, <laughs> my, my opinion changed, I think in one or two ways. The first thing is that you get the perspective that HR is just one of the many topics you have on your plate. Well, I ended up being so frustrated at times being like, why is my company leader, why is my CTO, when, back when I was at Criteo, was HR for tech, right? So CTO, so he was my number one person to look after and so on. I was like, why isn't he hearing my complaints, my needs? Why isn't he t taking enough time for HR, HR, HR? I was, I know when you, when you run a company afterwards, you realize that HR is like one of the gazillion topics you have to manage, so mm -hmm. I think it helped me take a bit of a step back. And then, yes, you're right to an extent. You're being faced with the reality of the business. You're being faced with the reality of uh, PNL about uh, making money, being profitable, and you're being like, wait, are we? And, and and suddenly you see things slightly in a different way, which is why, which is why I decided very early to hire an HR head of people for my own company, and I try to empower yeah. her with what I said previously. 
run you represent the people best interest i want to constantly constantly challenge me with the people best interest because i feel like it's too tough for me to be having oh. the company's best interest and the people's best interest at the time. I think it was this kind of schizophrenic thing to thinking business, uh, profit first, and try to thinking people about the same time. I mean, you can do it, but I think it's very hard for the same person to do oh, it. Yeah. I'd rather have this healthy uh, discussion with someone else, right? Well, so then this is directly related to my next question about the France and the U.S. side. So in the U.S., you work for me, I fire you. You're out the door tomorrow, right? I mean, it is it is it is a quick like like we don't like what you're in doing. States, you are gone. Yeah. There is no question. And in France, it is really hire, hard to fire someone after a certain amount of time. Like really hard. Like almost impossible. Now, Rachel and I both lean really far left in our politics, and like as an employee, hell what? yeah, <laughs> I want I want to you know put me in coach, and I'm I'm guaranteed a job, and I'm gonna work hard because I because I care because you guaranteed me this job, not because you're gonna fucking fire me tomorrow if I do a bad job. So like I like that as an employee, as an employer. <laughs> I like the ability to be like, hey, take a chance on this guy. If we don't like him, we'll just fire him. Like, if he's bad at his job, we'll fire him. It's okay. Like, I love that flexibility. So the capitalist in me and the socialist in me are like big time like this. And and I'd love to hear your perspective because you're a capitalist now in a socialist society. Uh, and and you know, how do you manage those tensions? And what was different when you were working Critio in Ann Arbor and San Francisco? And you know, what's which one's better for you? Oh, oh! So I say that I felt that as, once again it changed the viewpoint. Once again, I yeah. think that ties back to the view of HR because my relationship with people in the US felt very different. Like two employees in the US as an HR person felt very different than the one I managed to build in France. Once again, and partly right. to those reasons, like at will employment precarity, I had a view that I we couldn't manage that relation of trust because of this the precarity of the situation and the fact sure. that this relationship could be terminated at any moment. So yeah, for the me, the power dynamic. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And in fact, you know, it's one of the reasons I had the opportunity to move to San Francisco to manage our office over there. And I didn't like the impact of that relationship on the relationship I had with people over there, which I felt was never fully trustworthy because I felt that they were justifiably so defending mostly their best interests and that the company was just, they didn't have that type. I didn't feel as like they had that type of personal connection to the company. Sure. But back to your point, even though I feel the pain as an employer now of the risk associated with hiring someone because I know terminating someone beyond the probationary period is super hard, super costly, super risky. And I felt the pain as an HR person even uh, in France. I still lean towards this is a good thing to defend the employees. And it's something we have to live with even as an employer. I wouldn't change. Like, I wouldn't change. I'm not dreaming to be operating in the US environment because of that. I'm proud of our employee protection programs. I'm proud of the health coverage and those things like that that we have in France, despite the, some of the drawbacks mm -hmm. and despite some of the excess as well, having some employees being overprotected, but all system, every system has its flaws yeah. and I much rather have a system <laughs> with more employee protection in mind, even as an employer than... And no, I actually that love that. System. I thought you were going to say, well, there's good and bad of both, which you did say there's <laughs> no, good and bad of both, but you also said, right. but this is the right one. And, and I, I mean, I'm, I'm with you. Like, I would rather having been on both sides and i like there's things i like on both sides to be clear but uh if it's up to me and i'm so people driven i would take the risks and the difficulty associated with the french system because i think the benefits do outweigh the rest uh now you know 
how much does France stifle innovation because it's way harder to start a company in France because of that. But I don't know, you know, I don't know what the long-term impacts of that are, but it's, it's, it's interesting to me. So um, thank I you think there's very yeah, good reason to think that it's easily be enabling. You could just easily as easily be enabling an innovation from someone who took a while to get going or, you know, had a, had a serious complicated family thing happen and wasn't able to get their job done, but later on comes back and kicks major ass at your company. Yeah. Like there's, you never really know what's going to happen. And also because everyone in your, in, in, in the French marketplace operates at the same level, you're, you're able to, to plan ahead, hopefully for the financial requirements of sustaining these employees if they need to be sustained while they're going through something or whatever. But I, I think, I think a... if you start with everyone playing by the same rules, then I don't, I think that that washes out all of the potentially financially negative stuff. But I think there's a valid point to say that it might hurt innovation because you can't be as aggressive in terms of hiring, firing, and so on. I think I do think it might be hurting innovation. I, I, I still think it does, but still, I'd rather have that and employee protection than the other way around. But I still think there's valid reason to think it does impact innovation and, and, and France. And when you compare, it gives capitalistic innovation an edge when you're uh, located in California versus located in, uh, yeah. in France, probably. So mm -hmm. my next question is, um, you've been at big company, you've been senior leader at small company, and now the most senior leader at small company. Uh, the big boss. Yeah, I mean, two, so two part question. The first is, what makes a senior leader different from a junior leader? Um, and, or like a, a senior executive from a lower level leader, you know? And then my second part is, you're the most senior right now, what are you having the most fun with? Oh, oh, damn! Two good questions. You got to you got to answer the hard question first, and then answer that one. <laughs> yeah, the hard questions. What does a senior executive from like a more junior level manager and so on? I think it's the. I think it's the ability to take a step back and see the whole picture, right? I think, and in fact, when I think mm -hmm. of it, both in my personal journey and my expectation for my own company, I want to say I'm hiring someone that I expect to be a senior executive versus a first-time manager, is clearly the ability to take a step back and reposition some of the day-to-day the -day concern, day-to-day -day topic as part of the bigger picture of the company, is what I expect uh, someone more senior to be able. So I think it's the biggest the biggest thing is that really the ability to yeah. step back and, and put things into context is really the number one like as a number one differentiator between a, a more junior leader and a more senior leader. Yeah, I would agree with that. To your question, what am I having the best fun with? I said two things, right? Building a great product. Like I, I got back to my roots of like more computer science. I, I, I enjoy, like I'm super happy building a great product, right? And we might get back into how we got to a product in the first place, but building a great product and building a team. Like what I love, like, and I keep saying that, I keep telling the team that, right? Is that we're, I'm very, very, very enthusiastic and confident about the where we're headed towards, right? The destination, but I keep saying to the team, I think I'm boring them with this. It's, it's more about the journey than the destination. I don't want to be like, yeah, we're going to be this great unicorn, post-IPO company, whatever, multi-million. At the end of the day, I just, and it's always been the case with me, I just want people to get to work and be happy to, to do the job they are doing and be happy with to with whom they're doing it with, right? And which is a, my personal key driver. It's also the key driver of my co-founder when we sat down and defined like our company mission, vision, values. It's really something that we we sat down with like we want people to enjoy their day working for figures, right? So 
creating that kind of culture, finding like-minded people who enjoy having some bit of fun, enjoy the company of each other, enjoy doing their work, and are maybe less worried about the ultimate destination of being like this great billion dollar company, whatever, but more about doing good things with good people and having fun along the way. I think building the culture is something that was quite stressful mm -hmm. to me early on, despite my background. Maybe because it pressured <laughs> me, uh, it, puts, it, it did put additional pressure on me. It ended up being something I enjoy the most, along with creating a product. Yeah, and it sounds like you got to, you know, when you initially were studying software engineering and you were like, oh, I'll be alone if I do this. But now you're getting to do that and also have a whole team around you that you picked. And that sounds pretty great. Yeah, I mean, what's I, uh, it? And it sounds like what Kendall likes about uh, working as well oh, is yeah, creating an environment that people enjoy coming to work to. So you guys Your are, why for, yeah. for work is very close <laughs> to my why for work. Um, mm -hmm. The... Um, how do, how do I say this? I mean, is it fun hiring? You've been in HR for long enough. You've built HR teams. You've been responsible for other kinds of teams. But now you're hiring engineers. You're hiring uh, sales, I imagine. I mean, you're hiring everything. Is it, is it fun building a team of all these different functions or is it intimidating? Intimidating cool. because, you know, hiring is still intimidating. Like, answers are right, but... It's intimidating because you're afraid of getting it wrong. And getting it wrong, I mean, a mishire a miss is tough for the team, it's tough for the person, it's tough for you, especially when you're, you're trying to create that kind of environment where people care for each other, right? So when you create that kind of environment where people get attached to each other, you welcome someone as part of the team, every uh, person that has to be let go is i think is a tough decision and it's honestly despite my background and uh, despite the fact that I, I have to be a bit pragmatic in running a company like letting people go is still the worst part mm -hmm. of my role by i think a mile oh, and sucks. so it does yeah. put pressure on hiring quite a bit so i wouldn't say it's something that i enjoy that much i much i much more enjoy the company retreats we're running where everyone gets back to the office and we're having good fun we're having drinks rather than the hiring part which i think is still very intimidating no. despite my background despite the fact that i try to apply some of the best practices made it a very processed uh, heavy type of process and and, and mm -hmm. as unbiased as possible all those kind of stuff it's more intimidating that it's it high is, stakes uh, yeah, it's super high stakes super for high you stakes. yeah especially as a smaller company yeah yes yeah. definitely and and kind of along those lines, and you've come a long way. You 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 started out as you know as in engineering, and then you moved into a, a lower level HR roles, and you've built yourself up through all of these this, this this experience. What is the what has been the hardest lesson or the most embarrassing lesson you've had to learn on your way here? Do you think? I'm looks sure. off into the distance pensively. I'm trying to yeah. narrate because the, you didn't even say, hmm. You just, you just went quiet, which is totally Looked fine. Away. <laughs> Go ahead. I, I, I say, you know what? I, say, I wouldn't say it's like a, one lesson, but managing has been hard. Learning how to manage, I think, has been... Look, learning to manage has been hard, especially with the support early on. I think the level of listening skills, empathy uh, that you need to have as a leader. And, you know, it ties back to your previous point, you know? My personal belief is that it's very hard to manage uh, until you're very aligned with yourself, with who you are, with your strengths, with your weaknesses, mm. and so on, because it doesn't allow you, it doesn't provide you with the ability to you have, have to be self-aware. Exactly, to be self-aware and have enough empathy yeah. towards others who have different drivers, different qualities, different weaknesses. Mm -hmm. So I think I was, a sh I was about to say a poor manager 
very early on because I didn't okay. have that. You can swear you on can this say show. You can say shitty manager. If you want. I, I, <laughs> I can I, say I, shit. We, 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 oh yeah. Oh yeah. Please, please do. <laughs> yeah, you so can swear on the show. I was, I was a shitty manager at Big Dion because I think, because I think I didn't know myself enough, and like going through this mm. process of knowing oh, yourself, taking this. a step back after, uh, on yourself, allows you to understand. You have drivers. You have qualities. You have weaknesses. Others don't think the same way. Others are not driven by the same thing. And that's the moment when I had that ability to take a step back and learn more about myself. I had the ability to take back and learn more about others, have more empathy towards others who have different personalities, different needs, different way of expressing themselves and so totally. on. So I think this is the biggest lesson is that it's very hard, I think, to, to, to manage once you don't have that kind of... Uh, yeah, when we haven't been through this journey of discovering more about yourself and uh, yeah, your own motivations. Yeah, I a hundred percent agree with this. This is a huge point, and I have raised this point a number of times across our podcast. It's just you have to know yourself and understand your own motivations before you can be an effective leader of any kind. Because you otherwise you're just firing from the hip. You have no idea what you're doing. But it's way fun. And it hurts funner, everyone. Way more fun to <laughs> to have the company you built be your therapy session because you've worked out none of your shit. Uh, oh, we don't know anybody who's doing that right now, do we? <laughs> um okay, so uh, uh, <laughs> we do need to ask, tell us about your relationship with authority. How do you feel about when others have authority over you? And how do you feel having authority over others? Yeah, do you like it? I, I think, you, you know, it? I think I've been, once again, I think I've, it, it's, it's a very good question. You know, I think there's two things. I was very fine with people having authority over me in the past, right? Uh, because of the nature of the role I was in. I was a support function. I was in mm -hmm. HR where I think to some extent, you're never fully a decision maker. You always have to rely on other people. So I've been giving away most of my most of my authority in terms of decision making all of my life. But what's interesting is once mm -hmm. you become a company leader, I think to get to the level, at least in the startup world, right, where you're know, expected to grow quite fast, uh, have some form of uh, yeah, ambition and so on, you need to grow an ego, right? So I think it's very tricky to... Uh, what I found out is that I had to grow an ego to create my own company, to have ambition, to raise funds, to lead a team, to drive a team and so on. Why finding enough humility to let go of my authority and being like, and especially now that we're getting to a stage where we're 30 employees, I still find myself wanting to have, wanting to voice my opinion, wanting to be like taking decisions when I, I shouldn't be that. That's not my role anymore, I think. Most of the time, Move right? this pixel two to the left. I must, you know, all make of the details that you make should it probably. Bigger. Yeah. yeah. Keep going. <laughs> exactly. Sorry. And so That's what I, was I, th of. I think what I found myself is that I, feel, I find it really tricky to have that kind of a big enough ego that you need to when you're like pitching your companies, defining a vision, defining the vision for what you're trying to have, be super confident about what you're building, because if not, you don't raise funds, you don't attract people, and you don't get to what you're building. But having enough ego to let go of my of some of my authority power, to let go of some of my ability to decide and taking a step back, I think I've been... Um, I think I've been a, a, a tricky thing, right? A very tricky That's, thing. And on the authority, having authority about on some people, having them look up to you constantly, I struggled with it early on. I think so. I think it was quite stressful for me to realize I had people starting, joining the company, looking for you for decision all the time and so on. And something I embraced a bit more. But I think it's very tough that keep the balance you need to have as I think a company leader between 
enough ego to think bold, have that vision, drive the company upward, yeah. raise funds, hire people. But the enough humility to realize when you're wrong, to let people hire smarter people than you, better people than you, to take better decisions than you would take, take a step back and so on, I think it's been a, a key challenge. I think that's a... Yeah, it's got to be hard to have that dual personality. Well, as a yeah. really concise way to, to state that, Virgil, I think you're absolutely right. Like, it takes a weird person to say, you know what I'm going to do? Be responsible for people's paychecks. Like, that requires a certain yeah, amount of ego. their livelihoods. Yeah, and, and you're going to be shit at raising money and casting vision and going big unless you have some, like, rah-rah and this is a get behind me, we're going places. Like, you have to be ego, but then... The humility yeah. side of that. So actually what's interesting about that is the thing, how do I say this? Um, the most common mistake that I see first time founders make, and I work with a lot of first time founders, is this is my baby. You don't understand. All of my eggs are in this basket, all of them. And you made that pixel too pixels to the right when it should have been two fucking pixels to the left don't you realize what's at stake this is my life and they cannot let go yeah. Of perspective anything. yeah because <laughs> for everybody else it's like hey this is a job right but for you mm. because you're the ceo if this succeeds this is life-changing and if this fails you know what it's still pretty fucking life-changing because you had a you had a like that's what people lose track of is like the failure is not a failure mm -hmm. and it's uh, you know, it's, it's different, especially when you're VC, like it's not even your money, you know, <laughs> it's one thing if you invested millions of dollars in this, but I, 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 I love that you are aware of that and that you're tuned into that. That's a big deal. Now, what I want to do after this call is call the people that work for you and find out if you say all the right things, but you're shit at doing it. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> that well, probably right still am. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm probably saying I'm still am, you know, but the, the good thing also to that point, is that I've, been, I've had a very good advisor on this very early on. Someone that told me all the things that will happen, told me all the mistakes I will make, you know, and he, we had this conversation a few months ago. He says, if you see yourself talking all the time, taking all the decisions and so on, you're doing your job wrong. That's the time when you just sit down in a mm -hmm. room, let people talk, let them take decisions. And in fact, just, you should shut down. And you know, I find myself on Slack and I know that, you know, sometimes someone asking a question like opinion, and I was rushing to give my opinion, but of course, whenever I give my opinion, even if I try to think that I'm this kind of leader that's open to criticism, feedback, and so on, that people Door won't... always open. Yeah, well, my people won't hesitate to say they disagree with me. Of course, some of them, when they see some... I state my opinion first, and they had a different one. They were like, am I really going to disagree with the boss? So now I've learned mm -hmm. to shut up. I'm trying to still learn to shut up. It's very hard for yeah. me. Not put my opinions first. <laughs> Let's other decide. It's, 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 it's really, really tough for me. Yeah. yeah. So is that one of your top advice to anyone who is trying to lead a team in this way? Just like learn to shut up. Yeah, honestly. <laughs> Wait for other people to express their opinions before you move in. And I think so, especially because I think Kendall's meant it. Most company leaders have been in the position where they were making all the calls. They need to have that kind of ego. So I think most of them are making the same mistakes than I do. The vast, vast majority of them are making that mistake. Yeah. And you're going okay. to be more, more successful. Oh, if you let go of shit, you're going to succeed. Oh, yeah. Because everybody, you're just not going to be the best in every room. You never, ever, ever will yes. be. Even if you're shit at hiring. Go ahead, Rachel. Oh, sorry. I think we're getting to the point where we're going to need to wrap up. But I wanted to ask you something 
before we move into your more, well, this is kind of on the way to moving to your personal life. You have become a leader over the course of, you know, many years. How has that affected your personal life? Is it a positive change or a negative change? Like learning the things that you were just describing, step back and, 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 and shut up sometimes and listen to, uh, you know, I don't know if you have a family, kids, whatever, but does yeah. it, has it changed your relationships with your friends and your family, the way you interact with them? So I think there's multiple angles to this question, right? I think getting a better manager has made me a better father. I think there's so many ties to being mm. a good father than being a good manager. I, I think it's pretty... Uh, I agree. Like learning about... Same thing. I, I need to be a better father. I had to learn more about myself. And I think this was a key part of being... So I think in a way, it's not part of creating a company, but becoming a manager. Lots of the empathy, listening skills and stuff are applicable to being a father. Yeah, yeah. I, think, I think I have this thing to make me a better person. Um, I think creating my company has been tough on some of my environment and family because of the mental space this, has, this mm -hmm. is taking, like especially early on, the first year and a half and so on, like at times during like family dinners and so on, I was like keep thinking about our new pricing strategy because my mind would drift off there. So I think this has been tough, right? Uh, mm -hmm. But I'd say this, um, I've been through some trickier time family-wise the last nine months or nine to 12 months. And having such a fulfilling job, a fulfilling thing has been a, a lifesaver for me. Like being that happy, ah. as happy as I am getting to work, getting to meet the people I'm working with has helped me go through those, those tougher times in a much, much better way than I would have if I was like unhappy, unfulfilled at work and so on. So I think it's been a bit of a life yeah. raft through tougher time as well. And I'm... This that is one of sense, the reasons yeah. why I value, I want to value this, I want to create this environment for other people in my company because it's been so huge for me to have this healthy, fulfilling environment and be happy getting to work and be happy spending this day. Uh, it's been so important to me that I, I, I hope I can create, uh, recreate that to some of people working in, in figures. Okay. Yeah. Well, that so... Is a, that is a, yeah, like you kind of don't want your life to be all about work, but when, when other things are kind of craggy and difficult it does you can escape yeah. to work it just shouldn't be a permanent solution to that sort of problem well so talk about sure. that for a second when you're not at work when it's not figures 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 all day long what do you yeah, do what are your what hobbies do you do for fun? what do you do what do i do so aside from my family life i have two daughters age two and five which of course takes a lot of um, time oh, and energy yeah. but, which is a great thing <laughs> and i've been a key part of uh, of my personal life, uh, what do I do? So when I try not to think about figures, I'm I'm a big bike fan. I cycle to work, mm. back from work. I try to cycle on the weekend. Try cycle. I lunch in like those indoor cycling sessions. I'm a big. I have people make fun of me because I have five bikes. Soon to have seven bikes. Um, you can never have too, too, a lot of bikes. too many bikes. You can never have. Wait, but how but many bikes do you have, Kendall? I have one bike, but I had five before <laughs> I came to Portugal. So wait, I want to nerd on this for just a second. Tell us, uh, I mean, mostly road bikes. Do you have road and mountain? Are you wide tire? Are you fixed gear? Are you, you, know, are you <laughs> what do you think road? of e-bikes? Are your legs shaved? Tell us, tell us all those things. I'm not like shaved. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not like shaved, but okay. I have one too soon to have free road bikes for whatever reason uh because whatever as, reason yeah as part like you can't have too many bikes as part of the latest fundraising it's the like biggest gift i couldn't give to myself to 
congratulate myself mm -hmm. with another road bike, a very nice one. Um, I have one fixed gear bike that I absolutely love. And I think it's... Yes, that is the but... right answer. And with that, we're going to wrap... No, I'm just kidding. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> fixed gear bike. But you know, this has been a good thing. Me, for me, I realized when I, I stopped riding last year when things were getting a bit tougher, it's impacted my life in a big way. I, I, I need the right to work to give me energy and I really need the right bike from work to just to let go of yeah. everything. And I yeah. feel so damn much better. And a fixed gear bike has this kind of... I feel like kind of I, I can be poetic at times, well, I, not in English, but I feel like a much deeper connection with my bike. I love riding fixed gear. I love the feeling of riding fixed gear. So that's my first one. I have a cargo bike for my daughters to put them in the back, a long tail bike, and I have a randonneur slash gravel bike for uh, longer journeys across France that I've done riding cool. my bike over multiple days. What nice. do you think of e-bikes? Fine with e-bikes. E-bikes have proven that people riding in bikes are mostly people that would not have been riding e-bikes if they were not riding any bikes. So I'm very happy to see more and more e-bikes on the road. Even though the purist in me is like, I'll never have one. <sighs> But uh, yeah. I love seeing more e-bikes on the road. I bought one for my wife. And I love riding. Ooh. I don't ride it very often, but I <laughs> every time I get on it, I'm like, this is amazing. There's no hills. There's no wind. This is a blast. But, oh, man. Uh, but my, my only bike is a, is a fixed gear and I, I nice. take it everywhere. Virgil. It's my, it's my road bike. Oh, you it's two my are going to be besties. Bike, I can tell. It's my hill bike. It's the only thing I did because, <laughs> because fixed is, is it just, it's better. I'm with you. You just feel connected. Yeah. It's like having a manual transmission. It's just that sensory I, I input. Prefer. You need it. Um, okay, well, we should wrap up for time's sake. If people want to find more out about figures or about you, where do they go? Yes, they can the find internet. me on LinkedIn. Where can they find you? Yeah, with such a rare name, okay. right? Tough to pronounce one. That they, yeah. should, they should be able to find me on LinkedIn and, and reach out there. I will. Virgil. Virgil. Yep. <laughs> Virgil, thank you so much figures, for coming on the show. Wait, wait figures.hr was the website. I, t I spoke over that, so I got to be careful. Uh, HR. Um, yeah, yeah figures.hr. Uh, exactly. If if I say Virgil Rainguard, now give me a score, one out of ten. Or one out of ten. You know, I'll give you a seven. <laughs> Virgil was pretty good, but it's Rajar, if you want to pronounce it in a very, Rajar. very French way. Ooh, Ooh that was a nine. We're getting a nine over there. Yeah, you're getting a nine over there. Oh, d'accord, d'accord. I don't know. I like the American uh. Virgil Rainguard. Uh, Five right. <laughs> Dang it! Thank you. As always, I want to ask you so many more <laughs> yeah, questions yeah. about HR because it's a it's a huge and interesting topic. But uh, yep. maybe another time. Thanks. That for was really great. Thank you for being here, Virginia. Thanks for having me.